Good morning. So uh, over the past few weeks, uh, we have, with plenty of help from Dr. Sam Storms, uh, been working our way through the spiritual gifts that we read about in 1 Corinthians 12. We've been looking at how these gifts are for the church today. Uh, and then in the evening, we've been complementing uh, that teaching series by working our way through 1 Corinthians 13, uh, because really they should be read together because one flows out of the other. Uh, this morning, because we're not able to gather uh, as a whole Bologna congregation, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, so we can all hear Ollie speaking uh, on the gifts of prophecy uh, all together when we meet as a church family next week. So the context then of 1 Corinthians is that Paul is writing to a dysfunctional community of believers. In the chapters preceding uh, this one, Paul has highlighted numerous different issues within the church, and he addresses them uh, directly by uh, redirecting them back to the gospel, consistently showing how because of the finished work of Jesus, those who believe in him possess a steadfast, eternal hope and it enables them to live their lives differently to the world around them. This morning, we're going to be focusing on one verse from 1 Corinthians 13. But let's read the whole passage uh, so we get it in context. So please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13, and it will come up on the screen. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The church in Corinth, who Paul was writing to, was in a terrible condition. In fact, no church planted by Paul uh, had ever gone as badly wrong as this one. Understanding the culture of Corinth, though, gives us an indication as to why things might have gone so badly wrong. Corinth was uh, an, on a narrow strip of land uh, that connected two bits of Greece together. And it was a really popular stop for merchants traveling through to other parts of Greece. Corinth was known as a place for, of wealth, of intellectualism and diversity. But it was also a place known for its moral corruption and it had a wide variety of religious influences. And we get a little bit of an idea of some of the more negative aspects of culture when Paul lists off what members of the church were involved in prior to their conversion to Christianity. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, Remember that in your former lives, uh, you were sexually immoral, you were idolaters, adulterers, prostitutes, thieves, you were greedy, drunkards, slanderers. And a whole bunch of other things. And implicit in Paul's writing here is that these types of behavior are typical of what you might expect to find in some parts of Corinth. Paul was addressing the church here because not only were those behaviors being found in the culture, but they're also now being observed again within the church. 1 Corinthians 13 is often called the love chapter. It's often recited at weddings and other occasions to illustrate the virtues of love. 
But it was originally written to address the issues of division and selfishness within the Corinthian church. Paul's intent was to guide the Corinthians to a more excellent way, the way of love. And this morning we're focusing in on verse 6, which says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So I want to start by asking the question, what's Paul referring to when he says that love does not delight in evil? Well, in the previous passages, we read about members of the church sleeping with temple prostitutes, eating food from the altars of idols, of a man who's sleeping with his father's wife, of divisions and cliques within the church community. Not only are these things happening, but the church doesn't seem to see them as a problem. In 1 Corinthians 5, where we read about the man who's sleeping with his father's wife, you can hear Paul's astonishment as he says, and you're proud. All these examples are things which are contrary to the gospel and therefore, by definition, are evil. The church may exist in a morally bankrupt culture, but Paul isn't concerned about how people outside the church are living. But he's deeply bothered about how people inside the church are living. And we read that in chapter 5 when he says, I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler, do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel this wicked person from you. Essentially, Paul's saying the culture around, people are living how they like, seemingly without consequence, but you're called to live differently. Let the people in culture live how they want and leave their behavior to God to address. But inside the house of God, do not delight in these things. Because love grieves over what's evil. It longs for righteousness, for goodness, for holiness. Paul's commanding the Corinthian church where divisions and immorality are prevalent. Instead, to rejoice in the truth. But what is the truth? In the film, A Few Good Men, there's a famous courtroom scene where Lieutenant Caffey, played by Tom Cruise, is addressing Colonel Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson. Jessup says, you want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. And then the famous line, you can't handle the truth. So often, I think that if Jessup was addressing our Scottish culture, he would say, you don't have any truth. Over time, the meaning of the words becomes uh, distorted and confused. So we need to establish what do we mean when we say the word truth? Well, William Lane Craig defines it as this. He says, it's a statement or proposition is objectively true if and only if it corresponds to reality. So here's just a whistle-stop tour of how here in the West we've tried to find the answer to the question concerning truth. So in the 17th century, we have the philosopher René Descartes, who coined the phrase, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. The pinnacle of this process was that one must dissolve all doubt before arriving at truth. However, the problem is that we can place doubt on every single thing. And so the only thing that we can be certain about is that because I'm thinking about such things, I must exist. I think, therefore I am. As we move then into the 18th century, Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume wrote that reason can never produce a thought so strong that it can't be undermined. So really, skepticism is the truth. Everything is subject to our experience. 
And then we move into the 19th and 20th century where the dominant thought became modernity. Well, science is the way that we uncover truth. It's how we gather information, how we gather truth about the world that we live in. And then in the late 20th and moving into the 21st century, we move into post-modernity, which says that truth is out of reach and everything is relative. Or as Oprah Winfrey on her website encourages those reading, it's time to start living your truth. Theologian Alex McClellan puts it like this. He said, the focus is no longer on how the world is, but on how we see the world. Instead of facing the pressure to conform to reality, you assume reality conforms to you. Do not work hard to establish what is true and the right thing to do. Simply do what comes naturally and describe it as true and the right thing to do for you. It does sound like a nice way to live, but the only issue is that it's deeply flawed. What happens when people's different reality, uh, different truths come into conflict with one another? Which one should take precedent? And we see in society and the world around us that this thinking has led us to polarization, to segregation, and to a self-righteous judgmentalism and conflict. At a conference that I was uh, at this week, the speaker, uh, Mark Green, put up the following slide to give a snapshot of the current UK psyche. He says, we're psychologically narcissistic, emotionally anxious, philosophically relativist, spiritually peace-hungry, religiously wary, physically weary, operationally atheist, financially pressured, socially tribal, sexually fluid, politically polarized, technologically dehumanizing, posturally self-righteous. And I don't think that I would disagree with any of these. In our search for truth, this is where we've arrived. We live in a society where we're encouraged to live how we want, to create our own reality, to define the parameters of our own truth. But we also want to feel like what we're doing is right. And that leads us to placing the expectation on others around us to affirm all of our choices and decisions instead of questioning or challenging it. McKellen puts it a little bit more bluntly. He said, instead of disagreeing, we must applaud them and make them feel better about themselves. But he continues to point out the error of this way of thinking by saying the story of the emperor's new clothes, however, reminds us that you cannot make something true simply by affirming it, no matter how hard you try. All the way through the letter, Paul addresses an issue, and he responds by reminding them of the gospel. And he's doing so again here when he says, Rejoice in the truth. What is the truth? Well, Paul's very clear. He said it's the gospel. It's the truth that God has stepped into his creation in the person of Jesus Christ to live a perfect life and then demonstrate his outrageous love for humanity by taking the punishment which was humanity's to pay and dying on a cross. And then three days after being raised to life, conquering sin and death once and for all and ushering in a new eternal kingdom. He now offers as a free gift of grace, forgiveness of sin, and the promise of eternal life for all who believe in him. Rejoicing in the truth means rejoicing in the reality of Jesus and what he's done. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is recorded as speaking with his disciples, and he makes one of the most outrageous and offensive claims of the Bible. He turns to his disciple Thomas and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. This means the Christian faith stands or falls on whether it's true. 
Every claim that Christianity makes is devoid of any value, worth, significance, or hope if it's not true. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says as such, he says, if the resurrection of Christ isn't true, if it didn't genuinely happen, then the Christian faith has no point. And everyone who believes in it is deluded and should be pitied more than any other person on earth. However, if it is true, it's of the utmost importance. See, Christianity's grounded its truth in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone of Christianity. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection allow humanity to make sense of the world. It corresponds to the reality of the world, that it's completely broken, and that no matter how hard humanity tries to dig its way out of the mess, it cannot. It just gets worse. Os Guinness puts it like this. He said, the Christian faith is not true because it works. It works because it's true. There is, though, a common and popular thought which says, well, we're a diverse world. We've got 8 billion people. So surely if humanity is reaching out for God and trying to reach him, then lots of different pathways must be built so as to reflect the diversity of humanity. But the theologian Amy O. Ewing responds to this premise by saying that to think that way goes completely against the claims of Christianity. She says that this because Christianity claims that humans do not need to construct a pathway to God, but rather that God has made the path himself. Jesus claims to be God in human form, a divine initiative to reconcile a broken world to God not a man-made road of discovery to find God. Through this divine, redemptive plan, everyone can come into relationship with God. Earlier, we read that list from Paul describing how the members of the Corinthian church were living prior to receiving the gospel. They were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, prostitutes, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers. And yet all, through Jesus Christ, are now called children of God. All now have an unshakable hope and a certain future. And in Jesus can stand before the Father as holy, blameless, forgiven, and restored. And that can be your reality too. Through Jesus, we have redemption of our sin. Not through anything that we've done so that we can boast, but through the finished work of Jesus. See, every time I start to feel the pull of the world, I remember what Christ has done for me. I remember the pit of despair I was in, searching for significance, for acceptance, and looking to find peace in the things of the world, in relationships, in money, in other religions, in work. I remember constantly coming up short until I met Jesus. You see, every person on this planet has sinned, has made mistakes, missed the mark of what it means to be human, which is to love God and to love others. And there's a cost for that failure. It's death. It's eternal separation from the God we're all searching for. But God loves us with an everlasting love. And so compelled by that love, he stepped into his creation in the person of Jesus to create a path back to himself. And on the cross, Jesus, who never missed the mark, took the punishment which should have been ours. He suffered and died on the cross, paying the price of our sin and canceling our debt. Then on the third day, he rose again, and in doing so, conquered once and for all the power of sin and death. The Christian gospel is that by accepting Jesus as our Savior, we can be forgiven now. We can be reconciled to God 
now. We can receive the promise of eternal life now. There's no waiting until we die to find out if we've been good enough, if we've prayed enough, if we've followed all the right rules because salvation cannot be earned. It's a gift of God's grace. And to receive it, you need to repent. That means to turn away from the things which hurt others and hurt God and place your trust in Jesus and invite him to be your Lord and Savior. It's about getting off the path that you're trying to create to get to God, which leads to hopelessness and stepping onto the path which he's already made for you to come to him. It's a decision which will cost you everything because you no longer live for yourself but for God. However, it will change your life now as you're released from the weight of guilt and the shame of sin. But it also changes your future because it guarantees your eternal destiny and places the hope of eternity within your heart. The gospel message is one of hope and salvation and it's available to you today. It's not exclusive, but available to every person from every background, from every lifestyle, from every history, from every culture. Jesus died for all, no exceptions. And the gift is on offer this morning. If you want to accept Jesus as your Savior, accept that he is who he says he is, that he is the truth. And I want to invite you to join me in saying a prayer which will come up on a screen. It's, it's a prayer that simply says sorry for the mistakes that we've made. It thanks Jesus for coming and dying on a cross in our place. And then it invites the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, to come and live in us, to help us live our life for God. And church, I wonder if you would join me in saying this together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything I know is wrong. Thank you that you died on a cross for me so that I could be set free. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of grace. I now receive that gift. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be with me forever and help me to live my life loving you and loving others. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. And if you've prayed that prayer this morning, whether in person here or you're watching online, then tell somebody. Tell somebody about it. Maybe the person who brought you along. Or email me. My email address is david.lions at stmongos.org. It's the most important decision that you can ever make. And so we'd love to get alongside you and support you because this is just the start. Jesus calls us in Matthew 28, 19 to go and make disciples, not converts. And so there's responsibility for us as the body of Christ, his church, to walk alongside you, to help you learn more about what it means to follow Jesus and to live your life for him and with him. But perhaps you're here this morning and you think, I've already made a decision to follow Jesus. Those who, like Paul was writing to, what does this verse mean for us? Well, I think there's four things. Number one, it's a call to guard our hearts to be intentionally considering our motivation. What is it that we take delight in? Do we secretly revel when others make mistakes, or do we genuinely want the best for them? For me, I know that I have a very strong internal sense of justice. It's a really powerful, it's a wonderful gift. However, my heart is not very, if my heart isn't motivated by love, then I end up rejoicing in evil. 
if my motivation for justice to prevail is that I want the other person to be punished or to be hurt in the way that they've hurt others, or for revenge and delighting in evil, as opposed to rejoicing in the truth of the gospel, which is that without Jesus, I'm no better. So I need to think about justice from a place of compassion, forgiveness, with a heart of restoration. Number two, it's a call to love our neighbors, all of them. The people in our community, the people in our city, our nation, our world. Those who don't look, speak, think, or act like us. The people who've been displaced and marginalized. Delighting is evil is when we fall in with the zeitgeist of polarization, of segregation, and conflict. We must love our neighbor, even if they despise us. You see, on the cross, we see how Jesus demonstrated love to those who were in the process of crucifying him. Father, forgive them. Rejoicing in the truth means continuing to reach out to our neighbor in love. Number three, it's a call to pursue truth despite the cost. To keep the gospel front and center in our lives. To not forget what Christ has done for us on the cross. To put Jesus at the heart of all the decisions we make and how we conduct our lives. It means choosing truth, choosing Jesus, even when not doing so would be the easier option. The call is to do this in the little choices we make as well as the big ones. And finally, it's a call to walk by the Spirit. So we're most likely to take delight in evil when our motivation is for self. In John 14, after Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he goes on to say that he will send an advocate, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, to come and be with us. And when we accept Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into our life. It changes everything, it changes how we see the world, it changes what we desire, what we want, because we want more of God because the Spirit wants more of God. But we're like a bucket with a hole in it. We leak. And so in Galatians, Paul implores us. He says, keep on walking by the Spirit. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. When we follow the desires of self and make decisions based on what feels good, we end up delighting in evil. So we need to seek every opportunity to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to help us live lives of sacrificial love where we deny ourselves for the sake of God and for the sake of others. As we draw to a close, we remember that Paul wrote the words of 1 Corinthians 13.6 to address the troubled context of the Corinthian church, a community grappling with division, with immorality, with the challenges of living in a morally bankrupt culture. Paul urges them to embrace the transformative power of love rooted in the truth of the gospel. Love, as defined in this chapter, is not some sentiment, but it's a powerful force which allows us to oppose evil and rejoice in the truth. The culture of Corinth serves as a reflection of our own cultural moment where the quest for truth appears elusive and subjective. The prevailing notion that everyone has their own truth has led to polarization, to self-righteous judgmentalism, and conflict. Christianity provides us with a unique perspective, declaring that the truth is a divine initiative found in the person of Jesus Christ, who offers redemption, reconciliation, and eternal life to all who believe in him. His life, death, and resurrection anchor the Christian faith in objective truth. 
The call to rejoice in the truth is an invitation to accept the gift of grace offered by Jesus, leading to forgiveness of sin, transformation, and eternity being placed in our hearts. It's accessible to all, transcending backgrounds, lifestyles, and histories. By embracing this truth, we find the strength to live self-sacrificial lives, pursuing love for others as we walk by the Spirit, and allow the transformative power of divine love to guide our actions and our motivations. In a a world marred by moral confusion and relativism, the message of 1 Corinthians 13.6 offers a steadfast foundation. As we navigate our complex and ever-changing world, Let us remember that love delights in the truth and the ultimate truth is found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for truth. We thank you for the power of the gospel. Which tells us that Jesus is the truth. That it's not something that we can earn or deserve. But it's a gift of grace for us to receive. We thank you for the way in which your Holy Spirit guides our lives to live differently from the culture around us. That your Holy Spirit calls us to live in a way which reflects you. We can't love our neighbor without your help. So would you send your Holy Spirit to fill us afresh this morning? Come Holy Spirit. Would your Spirit overflow out of our lives into the lives of those around us so that we might demonstrate the truth of the gospel to all. Ask Fee and Chris if they'll come up and we're going to respond uh, in worship.